Hello and welcome back to the Political Notebook. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. My dad, Robert Robb, is still up north enjoying the cool weather, uh, but I'm here still with my younger brother, Danny Robb. Uh, part one was uh, last episode on European exploration. Uh, we're talking about uh, the nuances of, of government involvement and exploration and how uh, European exploration back in the, the age of discovery is similar uh, to the space exploration uh, program. Uh, so today for part two, we're going to talk about uh, space exploration and the, and the space program and public-private partnerships, and then uh, what the future may be uh, for space exploration. Danny, welcome back to the podcast. Hello again. <laughs> uh, so... Let's talk about space. Um, one of the key elements of European uh, exploration, uh, the foundation, I guess, was the industrial technological expansion with war. Yes. Did you say that's right? And I think that's what where we enter into the space exploration, that in World War II, massive, massive, uh, here in the United States and in Russia, massive, investment in industrial production of weapons, uh, and a lot of innovation happened because of that, uh, especially uh, with the Manhattan Project, uh, the invention and development of the nuclear bomb uh, that was used twice on Japan. So you had that foundation of uh, you know, industrial capacity, you had the foundation of uh, new, new technologies, uh, and then you see... Uh, a geopolitical situation happen where uh, competition becomes a requirement. And we're talking about yes. the Cold War. Uh, we're talking about Russians and, and, and communism and the Americans and capitalism. And it seems like, you know, the world is caught up in this, uh, in this competition between two economic systems. Yeah. Um, so take us, take us from there. Uh, so, um, and all of those things are very mu much connected. World War II and the emergence of the of the Cold War um, basically are part of one larger event. And when talking about the space age, you can actually go back a little further than that. Um, there is an economist at JPL named um, Alex McDonald. What's JPL? Um, JPL is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, okay. and um, I'm I'm not sure if he's um, still there, but he made an argument that the space age is longer than we think. That you can extend the space age back beyond um, World War II and the creation of rocketry and and space flight to astronomy. And he started to find a, a pattern, um, which was that this exploration of space through astronomy was mainly privately funded, and that the entrance of governments into funding space exploration um, was a new thing in the 50s um, that happened as a result of geopolitical circumstances and, and geopolitical competition between the United States and Russia. And so with that in mind, the period in which the governments of the world are funding space exploration seems like a relatively small window. 
but it's important to understand why they're doing this, what their motivations are. And so when you look at the world at the end of World War II, um, Europe had been devastated. The United States had not had a lot of fighting on um, its own soil and came out with a massive industrial capacity. Russia, um, the Soviet Union, came out in um, a position to compete. And they also had these competing philosophies, communism versus democratic capitalism. And their competition was a little bit more roundabout than um, the competition of the European powers. But it was basically for the same reasons. Uh, the European powers wanted economic dominance. And what was happening after World War II was you had the steady process of decolonization. All of those colonies that we um, were talking about last time, a lot of them were becoming independent. And if the United States or the Soviet Union could influence those newly independent countries to adopt their system, they would then be within that country's realm of economic influence. And political influence. And political influence. And so they started um, trying to compete for these countries through various means. And um, one of those means was signaling. And signaling is the idea that you make actions to um, convey information about yourself to other people in the world. And essentially what the Soviet Union and the United States wanted to signal was that their system was the best that you should join um, in an economic um, world in which the US is dominant or in which the Soviet Union is dominant. And so simultaneous with this competition is the need to have military power. And with the creation of the atomic bomb in World War II, military power meant um, having better rockets, being better at using rockets in order to put atomic weapons um, where you needed them to be or to have the ability to do so. And this created the perfect conditions for both countries to start funneling a ton of money into their space programs because that served a dual purpose. So I would, I would imagine um, that, that, that just brought me to a, to a question I'm thinking about because, you know, but before you had, you wouldn't need a rocket because no, maybe no one else had them. So you just put, put your bomb. I mean, that's how they did it uh, when they bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima. They put their bomb on a plane drove it over him, dropped him out of the plane, yeah. uh, and they exploded. What's the, um, what's the impetus towards wanting, instead of to do that, to shoot it up into space and be able to, uh, to send it over, do you think? So rockets had already started to be used in World War II. Um, the most rocket development happened under Nazi Germany. In fact, the man who was the head of their... Um, the rocket development program eventually became the head of NASA's um, Apollo program to get to the moon, uh, Werner von Braun. And they had already started using um, the, the vengeance weapons, the, the V2 and other rockets, in order to send bombs um, 
primarily towards England, I believe. And it was supposed to be terrifying. It was supposed to be something that was difficult to defend against because you, see it coming, you don't yeah. see it coming. Um, it's potentially um, cheaper than, than planes if you can produce them at a certain capacity. And they can be much more effective. They can be much more accurate um, if you get the technology down. Right. <laughs> um, because planes at the time were very effective weapons of war, but they require crews um, to be in enemy territory. Rockets don't require crews to be in enemy territory. Rockets have every, um, every strategic advantage that a plane does and more. And so, um, especially once nuclear weapons um, become your, your primary weapon of war, rockets become very, very important. And if not the primary weapon of war, even a, a, the one that would make the biggest yes. uh, definitive, you know, statement. Uh, yeah. And, and, and if anything, like using it as fear, uh, as exactly, saying, I, exactly. I have the capability to... Um, put this nuclear weapon in your city in a very short period of time yeah. from when I make the decision, um, the rocket gets launched. You're destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And so they started funneling a lot of money into, into funding this technology. And the space program um, was a very effective way to do this. Because if you can um, put a rocket into orbit and land a man on the moon, you have a mastery of that technology well beyond what you would need to um, deliver a, a nuclear payload. And while you're doing it, you're also simultaneously sending a great big signal that your political economic system is more effective than your competitors. That if you become um, the first country to put a man into orbit or to put a man on the moon, that is showing all of these newly independent countries that you are more powerful and more capable. So that's, I, I see maybe kind of two things happening is the signaling part and then also maybe the more direct part of funding. You know, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, some of these vulnerable Western European countries, you know, the spending and the, and even like the troops and reconstruction projects the United States did to try to bolster their, um, you know, support for democracy and, and kind of build up uh, those, those systems. But I guess maybe the signaling, do you think is that different than that? Or is that just trying to say, hey, look, uh, we want you on our side. You know, it's, it's hard to like build a democracy if you don't want a democracy. We've seen that happen you know, in, in some of the unfortunate wars that we've been in. Um, so you see, do you see the signaling and the direct reconstruction is like two, yes. two, two parts of the same coin? They are, they are components of the same strategy. Mm -hmm. um, the United States had a, a strategy in the Cold War that was um, proposed by a guy named George Kennan. And his kind of ideas about the spread of communism in the Soviet Union led to a U.S. policy called containment. And the idea was that you wanted to stop the spread of the Soviet Union and the spread of the Soviet Union's influence by um, 
convincing countries to enter the realm of influence of the United States. And so that, that was the stated goal of, of the United States, was containment of the Soviet Union, containment of communism. Yeah. And I'm reading a book on Truman right now. That's one of his, his big things yeah. there is like, remembering what happened with appeasement when Hitler is trying to expand uh, and just let it let it get away. Mm-hmm. It's like, we are not going to let Russian communism expand. And interestingly not enough... In, not even an inch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the Marshall Plan of uh, financial backing for, uh, you know, for countries to remain... Yeah. De- dem- democratic nations. And that's, that is something that Truman really kicks off. Um, Roosevelt was not as interested in that. And and the fact that Truman um, took over really propelled the United States on this course of containment. And the end result of that, if you um, listen to Truman and you listen to Kennan, the end goal of that is um, to stop communism and to spread democracy. But really a part of that that, that they're not saying is economic dominance. Okay. Um, and so while the Portuguese and the Spanish were trying to get access to Asian trade goods to get richer, um, the United States and the Soviet Union weren't necessarily directly colonizing these places, but they were bringing them into um, their trading networks. Okay. Um, and as globalization started to to ramp up, that became the path to economic dominance. Um, and so the United States and the Soviet Union aren't going for um, spices and gold and silver, but the end results for them are similar. They're going for technically skilled people, mm-hmm. they're going for displays of prestige, um, and that's what leads you into the space race. Um, is this geopolitical competition driven by um, the motivations of these governments? So um, one of the one of the elements uh, we're talking about, uh, kind of like government and private partnerships. Uh, last time we talked about the the nuanced role the government played in, you know, in uh, like Columbus's uh, dis- discoveries and expeditions. Uh, that that whole process wasn't the simple narrative that we hear in school of, okay, the government funds this and happens. It's more like, yeah, it starts that way, but then uh, private people and private companies competing for um, for wealth end up taking it and carrying it from there. Um, and there's a similar story with the space program. Uh, and you write about what you call uh, cost plus contracts. Um, so tell us a little bit about how um, the space program wasn't so simple as the government runs this. How does how does private um, competition and um, you know uh, people, individuals, and and business? How does that play a role in the space program? Yeah. So I I, I wanted to um, figure out what the legacy, or, or sorry, what the history of these private companies was. Because right now, the way that the space program works is that the government um, contracts with private aerospace companies who then um, build things for the government. And now you start to have some private space companies that are entirely privately funded and operated. Like SpaceX. Um, yeah. SpaceX has done a lot of contracts with the government, but initially they were... Um, 
privately started, privately funded. The rocket is privately developed. And there are other, co there are other companies that have started up that don't even contract with the government yet um, and are doing this entirely privately. And so I wanted to understand the role of these private companies going back um, because the private companies that are around today, a lot of them are the same ones that were around in the space race. A lot of them have legacies that go all the way back to World War II. And so um, what I realized when I was looking at what's happening today was that the important um, kind of determining factor in the relationship between these companies and the government is how they're contracted. And that will be what shapes the future of government involvement in space, are these contracting practices. And what I discovered was that um, the main way that the government currently contracts with companies is through something called a, a cost plus contract. And what that means is the government will pay for the cost of the development and production of the space vehicle plus a fee. And that fee goes directly to the company. And there are a lot of people today arguing about this type of contracting practice. And in fact, this contracting practice is starting to be um, kind of put aside a little bit. So if you've heard a lot about SpaceX, they do not have a cost plus contract. And this is a big deal. Um, and so I think it's important to go back and look at the history of these cost plus contracts and why they are such a big part of, of um, the space industry today, um, because that will help to explain the future. Yeah, let me just pause and wrap my mind around the cost plus dynamic. So usually, uh, you know, let's say um, government wants to build a road or something. You get paid for the road. Yeah, um, you, you, you get paid. So a cost plus contract is, contra is contrasted with a um, fixed price contract. Okay. And, and it's fairly simple. Essentially, the government says, and I don't know if this is actually how they do it when it comes to roads, but um, it, it's a good simple example. So if the, if, the, if the government wants to contract to build a road, they um, say to the private industry community, we would like to build a road. Um, who can build it and what price do we have to pay you? And so there's some competition here. Uh -huh. Where or build a school, <laughs> yeah, or build a school. There's some controversy about uh, yeah. contracts for for charter schools, <laughs> and so in, in a fixed price contract, essentially what happens is um, pe people bid and compete for uh -huh. a contract at the lowest price possible, and then the government, um, the company builds the road, and the government gives them the price. That they the said negotiated that they needed. price yeah. that, that you said. End of beginning. story. Okay. Yeah, end of story. And the issue with cost plus contracts is that they're oftentimes um, flexible. That that fee that's given on top of the cost of... So for, first of all, in a fixed price, if the company um, spends more than the agreed upon fixed fee, that's too bad for them. They entered into a contract where they would deliver a product for a price. If it takes, mo if it takes more, you're at a loss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. But in a cost plus contract, that cost part of it is the cost of the vehicle or the cost of the road. 
whatever that cost is. <laughs> mm. And the fee part of it is negotiable. Negotiable, d- d- like afterwards? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and this... Uh, so you're kind of... Th- th- I'm, I'm simplifying this because so it can change depending on the project. But, but it kind of seems like instead of, instead of everything up front, you're entering into agreement where... You know this thing. This thing is going to kind of play out, and it could go in, into different different sort of ways, right. uh, depending on how things play out. You know, with this construction or this yeah. project that I'm working on, and you with. see that happening in in the history of aerospace. And so, to understand the um, kind of tumultuous history of these contracts, you do have to go all the way back to the beginning, um, to World War One, which happened like less than twenty years after. Um, the very first heavier-than-air flights were made by the Wright brothers. Uh-huh. Um, planes become an instrument of war. And you need to contract with companies in order to um, produce these planes. And because of um, the kind of... Because the war was so pressing, because the need for planes was um, so dire they started to implement some something like a cost plus contract for plane manufacturers because with a fixed price contract you have to compete and um you may not get exactly what you need uh-huh. uh, and the company may not be able to sustainably produce their that product and so because of the needs of the war and despite the um trepidation of a lot of people who were afraid of cost plus contracts for the reason that they can be exploited and yeah. and taken advantage of. The demand was so high that it kind of like, hey, yeah, I got to get these it. planes. Mm-hmm. We got to give these more attractive contracts. Mm-hmm. But because of all that trepidation, because of the fear surrounding that type of, of contract, there were a lot of limitations placed on them. And um, in the interwar period, the use of those contracts declined. But the seal had been broken. And in World War II, um, cost-plus contracts come back in a really big way. And the reason is the same. They're in a war. They need a massive amount of planes. And to put into perspective just how many planes they needed, um, in 1938, the the airplane building industry delivered 900 planes to the U.S. government. Well, once the U.S. enters the war, Roosevelt makes a very famous demand for not 900 planes, but for 50,000 planes <laughs> every year. <laughs> and I, I believe in 1945 alone, um, the industry produced over 95,000 planes. Dang. To do something on that massive scale, it was believed that you needed flexible cost plus yeah. contracts. And that's uh, kind of interestingly where, where Truman kind of made his name of going going through these uh, produ- all these war production and making sure that people weren't uh, ripping the government off. Right. That's how, that's how he got his name in the Senate, mm-hmm. holding these companies accountable for that for that spending. And then you get into Eisenhower and his fear of the military-industrial <laughs> complex, which, as we're going to kind of see here, is is pretty well warranted. Uh-huh. Um, so 
they produced 95,000 planes, and it was mainly under these cost-plus contracts. And in, in, in fact, sometimes these companies even just got sort of written pledges from, from the government saying, we'll, we'll pay you whatever it takes, just get it done, before mm-hmm. they even signed a contract. <laughs> um, and at the end of World War II, um, the United States and the Soviet Union scrambled to pick up the pieces of the Nazi rocketry program. And the companies that they turned to in order to produce their rockets were the aerospace companies that produced the planes in World War II. And these companies had grown very used to these cost-plus contracts. Mm -hmm. Plus, the United States was in a new sort of war. The need for space flight seemed to be as pressing as the need for those um, planes of war in World War II. And so they started using these cost-plus contracts for these aerospace companies to produce um, the Mercury rockets and eventually the Saturn rockets that took humans to the moon. Okay. And during this process, the cost-plus contracts morph into a completely different beast. So one of the um, kind of case studies that I looked at was the mercury capsule produced by McDonnell. Um, Is that a company? Yeah, that's a company. And it eventually became um, McDonnell Douglas, which is probably going to be a familiar name to, to some of your listeners. Yeah, and one, uh, one thing that I found really interesting from reading uh, your writing is all these all these mergers over time that they started yes. out you know they started out to be several companies that were that were all competing by the end of the kind of the Apollo program you have like a couple um, and then there turns to be only one yep. and that doesn't change until until SpaceX right. comes around and and so th- what this is really what the story really is is a story of diminishing competition mm-hmm. and it's related to the change in the number of contracts and the way that the contracts are are negotiated and so um, after the end of World War II you had a mass cancellation of wartime contracts and a lot of these aerospace companies started to um, merge with each other because they couldn't support themselves alone. And um, the ones that, some of the ones that did the best were the ones that were contracted for spaceflight. And so you had McDonnell, who were contracted to build the Mercury capsule. So the Mercury program was the program that took the first Americans into orbit around the Earth. Mm-hmm. And the piece that McDonnell was building was the capsule, the part, the, the actual spacecraft that goes on top of the rocket that has the, the astronaut inside of it. And the one where it flops down into the ocean and, and the And yeah, guys that's the part that goes it. into the ocean okay. and that they crawl out of. And <clears throat> sometimes they recover the capsule and <laughs> some of them got lost. But um, they initially entered, McDonnell initially entered into a cost plus contract with um, the United States to build this capsule. And um, the original price for that was something like $18 million. And then plus a, <laughs> um, a fee. Asterix. Yeah, pl- pl- plus a fee of, um, uh, I don't know, another couple million. I have the numbers around here somewhere. And as the complexity of the project um, became clear, 
what they realized was that they needed more money. And because the need for these spacecraft was considered so pressing, they altered the contract. They needed a mechanism for that, so they added these things called contract change proposals, or CCPs. And through CCPs, within a year or so, the size of the contract had gone from 18 million plus some change to something like 70 million. A massive a increase. <laughs> and that's not even the end of it. Uh -huh. Because by the end of, of the program in general, that, that, that was with when the project was only 60% of the way completed. Uh -huh. By the end of the program, um, with additional CCPs, the cost of the, the capsule had increased to over 140 million, <laughs> over seven times <laughs> what it was originally forecast to be. Truman would not be happy about that. <laughs> no. And, and, if you, and if you are at all familiar with the aerospace industry and the um, space flight and military contracting that has happened since then, that will be a very, very familiar story to you. Because these types of pra contracting practices continued to be used after the Apollo program, mm. even when we weren't considered to be in a wartime and for it to be a, a wartime necessity. So um, so this kind of like shows just the, I guess, beneath the, beneath the surface level dynamics of how these contracts were made and shows not just the competition between countries, like we saw uh, in the age of exploration with the European countries. But also it shows the competition between people and, and companies trying to get these, uh, get these contracts. Right. So why, um, so we know, everyone knows the story, you know, JFK announcing, you know, the moonshot. Uh, we do that. We go to the moon. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan, um, kind of had his idea of, uh, you know, Star Wars of, you know, missile defense capabilities. But then you see as the Cold War comes to an end, uh, the space program um, doesn't go away, but it definitely fizzles out to the point where right. uh, we get to a point where, we're, as you write, we're not even, we don't have the capacity to send anyone into space at one point. Yeah. Um, uh, right, right now. Right, right? now we so, rely on the Russians to take American astronauts to the International Space so, Station, and and from what we've been talking about, it seems like well, there's no you know there's no geopolitical will uh, right. to to make that happen. Um, that gets us to I think like the kind of the end point of of your writing, which is kind of saying well, back in the you know back in the European exploration days, the government uh, geopolitical incentive to explore goes away, but that baton gets passed to private enterprise and, um, and private competition, other incentives from individuals and companies. Um, is that the baton that's being passed right now? I mean, we're seeing SpaceX, the private company, they're doing a lot of interesting, cool things with like reusable rockets and stuff. Um, do you see, uh, I guess, a simple way. What what's next? What's the future of space exploration? Um, is this baton going to get passed? Um, 
will we have, you know, vacations to Mars in our <laughs> lifetime? Or like, where, where do you see us going here? So the answer to the question, is the baton being passed, is a firm maybe. <laughs> if you've been watching it, the answer may seem like a resounding yes. And, and that seems to be perhaps what the trajectory is. But it's not assured. So what's happened lately is you're right. You, I, I think that you got you crystallized the pattern that we're seeing perfectly, which is that um, in the age of discovery, after the geopolitical will was lost, the baton was passed on. The, at the end of the Cold War, um, the geopolitical will was lost. And you see that reflected in um, the amount of government versus pri private contracts and space flight and the amount of money um, being given to NASA. And so right now, the baton looks like it's being passed. And it started to be. So in the Bush administration, you had um, a kind of resurgence of interest in going to the moon again. And you see this in a lot of administrations. Where did that come from? Where, wow. Who, who cared about that? Um, within the administration. Was it was that coming from the administration? That was coming from the okay. administration. It wasn't like there was like this big public demand for going back to the moon? Not necessarily. Okay. But, but you were kind of um, riding off of uh, the kind of fame of the shuttle in the 80s and 90s. And the space program has always been used as a sort of prestige... Um, yeah. tool for, for the United States. And so almost every administration lays out its, its plans for doing something new and innovative in space, and almost none of them ever get done. And it's because they are using it as a way to get voters and to say, we are all about the United States yeah. being number one in space. Um, but ultimately, voters and the government don't really care if it gets done. Um, the geopolitical will is not there. Mm -hmm. And so the Bush administration introduced two new things. One of them was the Constellation Program. And the idea behind the Constellation Program was that you were, you were going to reuse shuttle parts. And you're talking about W? Yes. George w. Yeah, George W. Bush. You were going to reuse shuttle parts to create a kind of frugal, cost-effective series of launch vehicles, of rockets, and establish a, a pre and go back to the moon. While he's doing that, he introduces a new idea for contracting with companies. He introduces a, a program um, that becomes the commercial um, resupply services, which um, the idea behind that was that the government would then develop a um, field of new launch suppliers, new companies that could provide launch services for the United States to take cargo to the International Space Station. And they started to interface with some new companies to get that started. Well, several things happened in the intervening period. One, the shuttle program got canceled. It eventually had its last flight in 2011, I believe. And Obama got elected. Obama shuts down the Constellation program, which um, was 
by any measure, a very reasonable decision. The program had not produced a lot of results. Mm -hmm. It um, had gone way over budget. And Obama decided to instead put the focus on commercial resupply services. Uh And not only did he envision that these um, companies would be taking cargo to the International Space Station, but that they would actually be the ones who would take astronauts to the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. And so the focus for NASA shifts from the moon and from developing its own launch systems to developing these private-public partnerships. Uh Now, eventually, the the idea of going to Mars gets introduced, and you get another Uh shift in focus and another government-led directive. Or finding a new new place to colonize when... The Earth becomes uninhabitable. Exactly. <laughs> and so... Funny, but not funny at the same time. Yeah, I, I actually believe that that existential risk is one of the number one reasons to go to Mars. Um, How quickly do you think... Because uh, one of the... You know, I think one of the big existential questions we face as human beings is, um, will we be developing the technology to leave the Earth faster than we will destroy the earth or the earth will become inhabitable. Yeah, and all sorts of other potential scenarios in which humans become extinct or nearly extinct. Like nuclear war or famine or disease or stuff like that. Yeah, bacterial resistance, um, pathogens introduced um, deliberately or not deliberately, um, artificial intelligence, asteroid impacts. There are a whole number of potential existential risks. And we are at a critical moment in our development as a species where we can actually think about those things and try to prevent them or come up with backup plans. Mm-hmm. Um, the dinosaurs couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and we all know what happened to them. <laughs> and so now that we have that capability, we should probably be thinking about those things. Yeah. And so a, a lot of people um, wonder why go to these places. Like the geopolitical will has been lost, but why should we go at all? And there are a whole number of good reasons um, that we don't need to talk about right now, since I don't know if that's what you want to um, focus on. How about we go to uh, you? You kind of I love how you finish your writing with um, kind of like where do we go from here? Uh, and you lay out three options. They're very simple, easy to understand directions that we could take. What are the three options that uh, in which we could go from here? So this picks up from where. Um, we just left off with the introduction by the Obama administration of commercial resupply services and the commercial crew services. And everyone's heard of SpaceX. Yeah, and, what and so doing. what's happened there is that those programs have been tremendously successful. And um, the, the kind of uh, poster child for that success is, is SpaceX. And what Elon Musk and SpaceX have done is that they've accomplished far more than they um, were expected to achieve. These programs were met with a ton of resistance from the old guard of NASA. Not all of them, Um, but Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan testified in front of Congress to say that we should not pursue those programs in the way that the Obama administration wanted to. Buzz Aldrin, on the other hand, has like come out strongly in favor of, uh-huh. of these types of programs. And I think 
uh, Gene Cernan characterized it as a pledge to mediocrity. <laughs> of doing the public-private thing? Yes. So he, he, he thought that he, the public-private was doomed. Was he more for, like, government? He thought that it was doomed to fail. He thought that the success of the Apollo program should try to be replicated. Gotcha, gotcha. And gotcha. many people to this day still believe that that is um, the route that needs to be taken. And but that, but as you've as you've written, that option requires uh, political political will. Yes, that just it requires it fluctuates from administration to administration. It requires funding, and it requires political, and the funding requires political will. Yeah, if the political will isn't there, the funding's not going to be there, uh-huh. and you're going to have. And if the funding isn't there, you almost necessarily need to have projections like. A decade or two yeah. out, and if you look at and at this, where your the importance of your historical work comes in, if you look at the past, uh, it's not there. It goes away. The political yep. will goes away. It's happened before. So unless some new political situation arises that in- initiates a a new space race, it's not going to happen, and and that seems unlikely because of how specific the circumstances were. Right. That. Um, sparked the first space race. Yeah. The fact that atomic weapons were new, the fact yeah. that rockets were an underdeveloped technology, yeah. the fact that there were newly imp- independent countries that hadn't aligned themselves with these economic systems. Those types of circumstances are not likely to be replicated. Which means that if you're going to have substantial exploration, it seems like it needs to be something that's led by private companies. Now, I'm not certain about this. I am sometimes wary that I'm not taking a broad enough um, historical perspective and that we are still within those circumstances and that maybe the geopolitical will is there, but it sure doesn't seem like it. Yeah. And so that means that we have... At the very least, it's a very vulnerable... Yeah. At the very least, uh, relying on that is is vulnerable and, and inconsistent. Yes. And... Um, it's been shown to um, to lead to stagnation. Earlier, you mentioned um, the mergers within the aerospace industry. Uh-huh. You had a wave of mergers after um, the cancellation of wartime contracts. And then you had slow mergers happening over the course of the, the next 50 or so years. What this eventually led to was major space launches being controlled, in essence, by one company. And this coincided, this period of consolidation coincided with a um, reduction in government funding for space and with less, like, kind of voyages of discovery Uh and stagnation and less technological innovation. Okay. So Lockheed Martin and Boeing were essentially the last two standing um, very recently. And they merged their spaceflight enterprises into one joint company, essentially, okay. called the United Launch Alliance, or ULA. Okay. And for a period of time, they were essentially the only major launch providers in the United States. You had some smaller launch vehicles, but they couldn't launch large satellites. Um, and there was technological stagnation. The technology that's used to send rockets into space is fundamentally the same as it was in the Apollo era. There have been a lot of innovations in uh-huh. um, robotic probes and the command and control technologies associated with it, but 
nothing that really changed the equation in terms of how cheap it was to go to space. What starts to change that is competition, is the development of these private companies under the commercial resupply contracts, including SpaceX. And SpaceX starts this project of reusing rockets. And to give your listeners some context, up until SpaceX, rockets were disposable. If you sent something into space, the rocket booster it was sent up on was dumped into the ocean or burned up in the atmosphere. The space shuttle was an attempt to change that equation to make it reusable, uh-huh. but it was a flop. Um, the, they never produced the space shuttle on the type of scale that they needed to achieve um, the cost reduction that they wanted, and costs went way up as opposed to down. Um, and it was an unsafe vehicle, and for all these reasons, it was scrapped. When I first wrote this um, thesis, SpaceX had not recovered any of their rockets. Mm -hmm. They had done a lot of hop testing, and they had started the initial phases of trying to recover their booster rockets. And the analogy that um, Elon Musk likes to make to hammer home the importance of this, and I think there's a lot of fair criticism of him, but I think this analogy is very apt, is that the reason planes are so cheap and air travel is so cheap is that the planes are reusable. Yeah. If you threw a plane into the ocean every time that you used it, you and I probably wouldn't be able to fly across the United States. And these rocket boosters are a major price component yes. of, of space exploration and really anything you're going to do, getting, yeah. getting any objects or people into outer space. The fuel is relatively cheap. The engine blocks are by far the most expensive things, and recovering the engine blocks and the rockets themselves would dramatically, in a cost-effective way, in which they don't require a lot of refurbishment, would dramatically lower the cost of um, going to space, which would open up competition. I mean, so is that, because they've done that now a few times. They have done that that, Has that hurdle been crossed? Are we beyond that? It is being crossed. And um, so shortly... What might be the kind of impact of, of space exploration if that technology becomes, like, commonplace? It's already sort of started. Um, so SpaceX has succeeded in, in recovering their rockets. And um, they now have recovered something like 25. Um, they have relaunched recovered rockets, which was a big step that a lot of huh. people were skeptical of them being able to achieve. They were skeptical of them being able to achieve the first landings of the rockets. When those started to become regular, they were skeptical that they would be able to relaunch, successfully relaunch any any of them. And now that they're successfully re- relaunching them, the next hurdle is um, to relaunch the same one many times yeah. with minimal refurbishment. Gotcha. And they've just launched the... Um, first iteration of their rocket that's meant to do that. Okay. Now, already this has motivated competition. ULA, shortly after um, SpaceX successfully negotiated for some additional contracts, after they had been very successful with these recovery um, operations, announced that they were going to be scrapping um, their family of rockets that has a legacy dating all the way back to the Apollo era, mm-hmm. and starting a new launch vehicle 
that has components that could potentially be recovered. <laughs> Some European space launch companies have, uh, like and Airbus, and, have and introduced and similar these companies, concepts. These companies are doing this for profit motive. Yes. Right? They, um, they know if they, if they get in and they get their rocket launcher thing, that they're going to make money Yes. From from governments or who's going to... No. In fact, um, most launches nowadays are commercial. Um, SpaceX is making a lot of its money, not off their government contracts, but off of their contracts with especially telecommunications companies at this point who need satellites in orbit. Um, and other companies want those contracts. And um, there are new potential industries that could develop based off of this. And so you're starting to get a lot of companies entering this scene, developing their own launch vehicles or developing their own payloads to do new and interesting okay. things based on CubeSats or other types of satellites. And from there, maybe the future is kind of wide open. Right. So let's finish. And so what, I, what, what, I, what I kind of say in my, um, in my thesis is that people not a lot of people are talking about this. There are a subset of, pe of, of people who know about this industry and are getting really excited about it. We are looking very much like a nation that is on the verge of a massive period of expansion. But nobody's really talking about that. And they're not necessarily talking about the right things in terms of how... When you say expansion, you mean technological expansion? I mean technological Space. expansion and physical expansion in that we could colonize um, oh, Mars, which, gotcha, which gotcha, not gotcha. all these companies are doing this for profit. Sp SpaceX's stated goal is the colonization of Mars. Uh -huh. um, and so you have companies waiting in the wings for these cheaper launches to colonize Mars in the case of SpaceX, for space tourism in the case of um, Blue Origin, started by Jeff Bezos, and who, who's also um, who's experimenting Amazon, with... Who's the Amazon guy. Yeah, he's the CEO of Amazon, and he's, his company has been experimenting successfully with reusable rockets as well. <clears throat> Interesting. And they are interested in space tourism, as is Bigelow Aerospace, who has one of their inflatable habitats that he eventually wants to turn into a space hotel <laughs> on the International Space Station right now, which has been inflated and had wow. astronauts go into it. Um, that's exciting, and that's not that's not something. I think we get you know we get caught up in all the controversies and the uh, anger and hatred of, of both sides. And this, I love how this allows humanity to think beyond and think about what's next. And I think that's that's one of the biggest uh, maybe cultural things that that was happening at the time when the first pictures of Earth from right. outer space came down. I was like, wow, we are on this little planet and we're all together and if you look at it from that perspective you know my beef with you know my political opponent right. doesn't seem like that big of a deal and an issue with space exploration that, that gets raised almost every time i have this conversation is somebody saying well why are we doing stuff in space when we should be focusing on our problems here on earth it's a good question it, it's a great question and um my answer to that has always been um twofold that and that I feel like that question actually needs to be answered before we go to the next step, which is how do we do that? Yeah, my last question is going to be what What would your suggestion be? Yeah. Um, for like a government to nurture this, but right. But but, but, let's, but, let's but the reason to actually question. go is the the primal question that you need to answer before you go there, even. And um, and I think the answer is twofold. Number one, they aren't mutually exclusive. 
we as a country have an enormous amount of resources. Now, a lot of them are misallocated, but we have more than enough resources to both handle our problems at home and develop space. The second part of it is that space exploration has historically and will always help us at home. You would be amazed at the number of, of technologies that exist that were only accelerated or only discovered because of the Apollo program and subsequent space exploration. Like um, what? So some of the, the biggest ones that got further developed would be, and the, and the ones that would have great application for home, are energy production without fossil fuels. Uh -huh. If you're sending a probe to the edge of space or sending humans into space, you don't have fossil fuels there. Yeah. Um, and so solar panels and, and nuclear technology get used in space exploration and you need to make ways to make those smaller and right. lighter and more efficient. And those get further developed. And I think, and a lot of telecommunications equipment, I think a lot of people saying why develop space technology are sometimes typing that out. Um, yeah. And their complaint about space technology is getting sent into space <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then to somebody else. Um, That's a good point. So, and I think, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the problems that we face here, you know, could be solved uh, or could be, could be aided. Uh, you know, it's not just a resource problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, smarter policies and and, and kind of like human human problems gives you a new perspective yeah, on, yeah, yeah, on those yeah, problems yeah. yeah yeah that's a good way to put it yeah so let's let's finish with the with that with that question what um what policy what what can be done from the government level right. to nurture you know maybe not just in the united states but what can be done what can governments do to nurture this process so historical analogies are sometimes dangerous it can be hard to develop specific lessons from historical analogies. And so the broad overarching lesson that I took from the Age of Discovery um, was a, a couple things. One is that um, government-funded expansion is fickle and dependent on geopolitical circumstances. The second is that governments, if that exploration is to continue, it's going to be led by private organizations and individuals but the, the government will never go away. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of that early exploration couldn't have happened without government sanction and government support. Okay. Not necessarily government funding or government direction, but support. government sanction and support. And so I see a similar trend happening now, which is that um, we had the geopolitical circumstances that motivated governments to, to fund this stuff and direct it. Those are gone which means that now we kind of have um, a few options ahead of us that will change the way that the role, well, that will change the historical role of the United States in space exploration. And those options are as follows. Option number one is to continue with the model of the Apollo era. Which you've kind of already said not necessarily. It's not going to work. I mean, there are people still that will argue that that's the only way that it's going to okay. work. What's um, option two? Option two is, uh, and so to explain that option, that's totally government funded, totally gotcha. government directed. Um, option two is to go the opposite direction, to say the government is no longer going to fund and direct these things. It is going to um, help to develop 
this industry, to ex accelerate the development of this new industry by supporting it with contracts that the government needs, competing them out to introduce this element of yeah. competition to prevent the stagnation that we saw with the Hudson okay. Bay Company and that we saw with, with ULA um, in the modern age. And so the government can play a very important role in that, where it is still using its money, but it's spending a lot less of it because it's developing this competition and is, is supporting them technologically. Um, the, the Spanish had a, um, an organization called the House of Trade that would kind of dole out contracts, um, do research, do map making to support all of this. Um, endeavor, and I could see NASA taking on a very yeah. similar role there um, as kind of a supportive kind of like organization, doing, doing a little bit of homework uh, that that everyone can benefit. Yeah, I mean, and, and, could, and doing the research that, that so see, benefits benefits but you us even right see now. Like public universities, you know, playing that playing yep. that role as well. Yeah, and and the public universities um, interface with NASA in order to yeah. do to do that research. One of the the guys that I worked with at ASU um, worked on the the Mars rover, mm -hmm. um, and that's all kind of organized by NASA and JPL. And so that's option two, is um, use the government's resources and influence to accelerate the development of a um, market for space yeah. and space exploration. And then the third option is a hybrid between those two. Is this the one that you recommend? Like if you're, if you're, if you're sitting there recommending... A policy option. Are there one of these that you sit um, there and recommend? Yes, and I will get is to that third? in a second. Okay. It is not the third. So the third is actually um, almost the worst. Okay. And unfortunately, recently it has been the most popular. The third is a hybrid. It is where you develop goals for government-directed voyages of human exploration, and and um, to the space industry nerds out there, I'm not really talking about um, like robotic probes. I'm mainly talking about human exploration, although robotic probes do enter into this. I, I, I would see that as part of NASA's yeah. research, but I would see them needing to do less of that or being able to piggyback on um, private enterprise that uses those. But um, right now, the hybrid model would be the United States still directs and um, funds human exploration. And right now, and simultaneously, tries to develop the, the, these private industries. And right now, that's sort of the model that is being used. So the Constellation program introduced by the Bush administration um, was sort of replaced by the Space Launch System, the SLS, that is now being developed along with some other spacecraft and some potential space stations that are being proposed. Under the Obama administration, the goal of those had been to get to Mars. And they're simultaneously in undertaking those projects and the projects of developing these new marketplaces. And so the question is, where do we go from here? Do we go with the purely government? Do we go with the um, development of, of private capabilities? Or do we use this hybrid model? And so I've been kind of watching what the Trump administration is doing, and it's so far not very clear. They are making a lot of um, gestures about space, similar to a lot of other administrations, 
and they like they resurrected the Space Council, which had uh-huh. been dead for a while. And uh, Vice President uh, Pence has been talking a lot about it. But he, so far, he hasn't landed on any of those. He's kind of danced around between them. He says a lot of good things about the um, the private companies and and those programs. But um, the Republicans are. Um, I, I I would always assume would have been in favor of developing these private industries. Uh-huh. But um, oftentimes it seems like the, the small government when it suits them. Um, and so they've been making a lot of noise about that, but have also been making a lot of noise about um, the United States being number one. And so we need to like have a big government funded yeah, 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 yeah. Um, voyage like this. And so... And also, it has the problem that these commercial services were mainly the um, kind of the project of President Obama. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's what it's, that's what it seems like. So, uh, so you might not expect. Yeah. So, so it sounds like the government support of this competition, uh, not the government directly taking over themselves and and initiating mm-hmm. uh, a goal and trying to carry it out, but um, the the nurturing, the homework, uh, the support uh, for these developments and these and these companies are already taking the initiative, already have a profit motive already there, um, and uh, have a lot of positive externalities for the rest of us. Yeah, uh, from all the from all the good technologies and um, and benefits, short term and long term, that could that could come down yeah. the road. And so the, the Trump administration just appointed a new NASA administrator. And so we've gotten a little bit a little bit more information about what they're thinking about doing. Um, Jim Bridenstine is mm-hmm. the new NASA administrator. And um, <laughs> they have shifted the focus back to the moon, <laughs> which is the third shift in as many administrations. Uh-huh. Um, and every time you do that, <laughs> the timeline gets right, punted right, down the right, road right. a little bit. And, and so... I was I was a little bit hopeful with the things that Bridenstine had been saying, um, the pol- the policy uh, positions that he had been taking before he was appointed. I was a little bit hopeful that he uh-huh. might go with option two, and um, but so far it seems like the direction is option <laughs> three is going with the hybrid. What I mean, so what would need to happen? Just uh, what would need to happen in like in a how would the energy be geared towards option number two, which you feel is the best? Would it have to be like a candidate saying, this is what we're going to do, and just and just doing it? Um, what's the practical, like, uh, you know, how does that... That's an up? interesting question. And um, I don't think there's a clear answer to exactly how that would happen. I think that, that, that there would need to be a bigger conversation about it. Yeah. Um, it Which is what need... we're trying to do right here. Yeah, exactly. Let's the, start the conversation like, like I said uh, about before. space exploration and uh, make yeah. some good policies. Because it's, it it it's not a policy debate. It's not a public debate. We're bickering about all court, sorts of you know important things because we're being affected mm-hmm. by them. Um, but, but, but but these are the things that that will be remembered by history. Yeah. That, that um, if we colonize Mars, humans become a multiplanetary species. That is a, a, a level of um, historical significance yeah. beyond anything that any of us have seen in our yeah. lifetimes. And so, uh, and, um, 
what what the decision that we make now will determine how quickly this transition into a spacefaring civilization happens. Yeah. And we are we it can happen sooner than people think. Yeah. And the fact that there are so many companies that are clamoring to get involved in this is a great sign. That's a good sign, yeah. But we have but the conversation about how we accelerate this and how we make it happen isn't there. Yeah. The conversation is continuing to be yeah. um where do we go rather than how do we foster this new yeah. world? And I think a lot of people would be would be really excited about. It. I know I know some young students that would oh yeah be really they students are interested in this kind of stuff. So um, let's finish it there. Uh, Danny Rob, thank you very much for uh, for joining us for our two part conversation mm-hmm. uh, about space exploration and the history of space exploration. Thank you for having me. Um, this is the Political Notebook Podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or any podcasting app. We're probably going to be taking uh, a longer break here because Danny is getting married on the East Coast. Um, so the Rob family will be will be traveling uh, to participate in that. Danny, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.